Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Michael Mobison, the head of Consilient Research at CounterPoint Global, and fortunately, a regular guest on the show. Michael's an astute researcher of behavior, decision-making, and complex systems, and I reached out to him to get his reasoned temperature on the current climate. We discussed frameworks for making good decisions in turbulent markets, monitoring stress, assessing valuation, and determining where to look for opportunities. We then touch on Michael's current research and detour to our inevitable topic of sports. Please enjoy my conversation with Michael Mobison. Michael, thanks for doing this. Great to see you, Ted. Always great to be with you. With all of the work you do, it's almost theoretical and practical in behavioral economics and all the interdisciplinary thinking. We're now in the thick of the time when people need to apply this. And maybe we could start with just what's come to your mind in this period of time when markets really are crashing. Well, I think that one of the main things is this idea that this whole period becomes very stressful. And when things are stressful, what does that mean for how you behave? There's this great work by Robert Sapolsky at Stanford University on stress. And I won't go into the great details, but the big punchline is that when we're stressed, these certain market conditions for sure contributing to that, we shorten our time horizons. So precisely when we should be casting our eyes out on the horizon, we sort of look down. There are sort of three conditions that are key to stress. And let's see how many of these boxes you check right now. The first is you feel a lack of predictability and control. Okay, check. The second is you lose outlets to let off steam. (laughs) (laughs) And you think about, that's actually important because you think about even in other sort of financial crises, at least you could go out and socialize with people and commiserate with people and so forth. And you can do that now in a much more difficult setting. And the third is you perceive things are getting worse. It's just fundamentally the sense of lack of control. And so the question is, how do you offset that stress? What kinds of things can you do? And as an organization, can you look forward? So, you know, what we know, and Ted, you and I are old enough to have lived through a few of these things. What we know is we always do recover from these crises. We don't know how long it'll take and how severe it'll be between here and then, but we do recover from these things. The question is, can you get to the other side in good shape without too much of a financial and professional toll? And I think a lot of people, when they're stressed, worry about not only things like their wealth or the wealth of their clients, but also their own jobs. So these are the things that come to my mind first is, A, we've been through these. They all look a little bit different, but the basic patterns are similar. But this sort of psychological reaction of this notion of stress and me hunkering down and just looking right in front of me instead of thinking longer term cycles becomes sort of the prevalent way of thinking. The other thing I'll say is there's an interesting new book by John Tierney and Roy Bollmeister called The Power of Bad. It just came out a few months ago. And their argument is in life, generally, people tend to put much more emphasis on bad things and good things. And you know, so that emanates from this concept of loss aversion. There's some, I think, really fundamentally good evolutionary reasons for that. But they just said it's much more problem. So in these kinds of environments, people are going to go out and scare you to death, tell you how bad things are. 
And I think we've had some pundits on TV today talking about trillions of dollars of losses and so forth. And there'll be some people who speak more positively, but I think that what resonates with us in these kinds of environments is the negative news. And there's no way to say that it's not right. I mean, the band of potential outcomes, as you know, is huge. And there are a lot of really dire scenarios. And so I think that's another thing, just psychologically, between the stress, our inability to think the longer term, and sort of this idea that we tend to place more weight on negative than positive, again, for good reasons in terms of survival, but that may not be ideal from an investor's point. So when we start with that behavioral challenge, let's say, to making sure we're thinking clear-headed, and you can imagine the different things that people say, oh, you can meditate, you can take a deep breath, you can get your exercise. Let's say you get to this point where you feel like you have your wits about you. What are almost the checklists or the right things to do in terms of a framework to try to figure out where do we think we are and therefore how should we act with the portfolio? Yeah, well, let's break it down into some components. Let's talk about cash flows and talk about discount rates, right? At the end of the day, financial assets are cash flows and discount rates. Maybe I'll start with discount rates first because there's some weird stuff going on out there. One observation I'll make, and I'd love to get your take on this, Ted, as well, is that you can go to the Federal Reserve of St. Louis website, FRED, and you can pull up two charts really quickly, and I think you'll find something interesting. At least I find it interesting, which is the first, just look at high-yield OAS spreads, so high-yield option-adjusted spreads. And we're now, as of last day or so, about 900 basis points spread. We've seen episodes like this in 2016, 2012, but we are about half the levels of spread that we saw during the financial crisis. So that's not good, but it's not as bad as it was, say, 10, 15 years ago. By contrast, if you look at the VIX, so bring up that chart, VIX has been around since the early 1990s. I believe it's correct to say that the prints we've had on the VIX and the clothes we've had on the VIX are at all-time highs, higher than the financial crisis. And I don't know what your sensation was during the financial crisis, but it really felt like the world could come to an end. This one, we don't know how big this exogenous shock is, but basically the financial system's pretty healthy and businesses, corporate America was pretty healthy and so forth. So I find that to be a really puzzling dichotomy. In other words, if I'm interpreting it reasonably, which is there's less concern about the credit markets not good, but less concern. And there's some, especially levered parts, especially levered to energy and things like that, where there are some substantial challenges, but still the implied volatility in equities is epic. Now, maybe there are technical things like people who are short volatility have to cover and there's some weird stuff going on with that. And I just don't know, but that to me is an interesting thing. So discount rates. The long story there though, is these do tend to be mean reverting series. So we know that volatility comes in clusters. We have periods of high volatility followed by periods of low volatility. As long as there've been empirical finance, this has been well understood. Benoit Mandelbrot wrote about this in 1963. But this is not a new observation. We are now in a high volatility regime. We will eventually transition to a lower volatility regime. Things will calm down. So discount rates essentially will go down. That would be positive for asset prices. On the cash flow thing, this is time to roll up your sleeves. And I think it's hard to, you probably could do this on a macro basis. I much prefer to do it on a company by company basis. In the book I wrote with Alfred Rappaport, we have this section we call the expectations infrastructure, where we basically say, look at ranges of sales outcomes. How bad could sales get for company X? And by the way, that's related to GDP growth. So start with all that stuff and pick a downside scenario, maybe even make it worse than you think it could be and have that be your and then you sort of refine that downside through what we call these value factors, things like 
the volume, how much volume is declined, pricing and mix, operating levers. So basically this relationship between fixed and variable costs and then economies of scale, how will that affect your ability to deal with your suppliers and so forth? And then that allow you to understand the impact of changes in sales and changes in earnings. And I think you have to go company by company and maybe you could do industry by industry, but company by company to really get your arms wrapped around that to see what the downside is. Now, here's an interesting exercise, and I think people should try it out. This is kind of fun academic thing to do, which is build a really simple scratch DCF model. Simple thing. Basic drivers of revenues, index it at 100 of revenues, grow it, and calibrate it so that you get to the PE multiple prior to, let's call it, the end of February, prior to it's all really hitting. So you're calibrated and then simply X out the first two years of cash flows, literally put them at zero. And if you want, make them negative and then see what happens to the value. So the point being that when you do that, if that model is the correct way, and by the way, you could argue that with rates having come down, I mean, it's interesting, they've come down, the 10 year and the 30 year are back up a little, the yields are back up a little bit, but we did a valuation project in my class in mid-February when the 10 years at 1.6, now we're at 1, 1.1, something like that. So it's down, but not as much. Do that exercise and see what comes out. So you could argue that either equity risk premiums are up or elevated, risk-free rates are clearly down, and just do that exercise and see what happens. I think it's a good way to sort of put yourself in the right mental context of what's going on and just do math. So part of it is what should be calming is to do math. So I want to start on that cash flow side. What does it look like, just a back of the envelope, if you do cut out those first years of cash flows? And I imagine there's a wide range, a normalized discount rate. There's some range of a market-like, a GDP-like grower. How much of the present value gets chopped out? Somewhere between, it can be 10 to 20%, but that's sort of the high end. And you know, the other thing is weird, Ted, is that when discount rates come down, that means actually future cash flows are more valuable today than they were when discount rates were higher. Also means expected returns are lower, but that's an interesting sort of trade-off. So yeah, it's <laughs> the drawdown we've seen, you could argue that we had a very good 2019 in the equity markets. There are a lot of people have been concerned going into this whole thing, concerned about economic growth and so forth. So that would be the other argument you would make is, gee, we were overextended. And this part of this correction has been a function of just flushing out some of that excess. I'm not so much in that camp. I mean, I think if you looked at the kinds of things that I like to look at, like shareholder yield or free cash flow yields, those numbers, especially given prevailing risk-free rates, those numbers were sort of in line with or even attractive relative to history. And I do think there's some accounting stuff with companies and intangible investments versus fixed asset investments and so forth that make it a little trickier to compare things like CAPE ratios, apple to apple over time. So again, we don't know. I think you and I would agree. We have no idea what's going to happen the next week, month, few months going forward. But it is interesting just to pencil out some of these things and exercises and think to yourself, all right, do I think earnings power is a mean reverting series? Do I think that discount rates are mean reverting series? And Every time we get to these crazy elevated levels, for example, on VIX, it doesn't stay at 80, 75 for extended periods of time. We just know that. I will say I did this for my class. I went back and the only time we've ever seen sort of perpetually elevated volatility was back in the 1930s. So right after the crash of 1929. So there was a period of sort of crazy volatility, but I just think there's much more depth in these markets today, much more capital and so forth. So I wouldn't anticipate they're going to revert back to the 1930s. When you're scratching out this math, it feels like the numerator revenue side earnings is a lot easier to play around with than the discount rate. You mentioned that 
the discount rates will revert at the same time we've got a risk-free rate that it's hard to see how it's going to go up anytime soon, given the amount of debt in the system. So how do you think about calibrating what the discount rate should be when you're just trying to scratch out that math? If you think about this, there are sort of three drivers to get to an asset price, and we'll call it value, but we can debate whether value price should be similar. So it's going to be some sort of cash flow stream, as you point out. It's going to be some sort of discount rate. Let's leave that aside because that's what you're asking about. And third, it's going to be some sort of horizon. So what we'd like to do is sort of try to lock down two out of those three. So one way to think about this, as you point out, I'm running my scenarios for my cash flows. Some will be better than others, but I have a range, my probability, weight, those things and so forth. And then think about a time horizon. And again, there are a lot of models that allow you to give you some sort of sense of how to do that. And another way to do this is just to take today's prevailing price for that, let's say it's a stock, and then back into what discount rate solves for it. And then say, if that is my rate of return or expected rate of return, does that seem to sufficiently compensate me for the risk I'm assuming, including this concept of margin of safety? By whiffing on my numbers or whiffing on my distribution of outcomes and so forth, I'm mean, still going to be covered. So there are kind of two ways to think about this. One is, yeah, the earnings series will be a mean revering series, the discount rate will be mean revering. The other is just leave aside the second part and just say, if I have these scenarios, what discount rate do I need to solve for today's price? And is that a, a reasonable or attractive rate of return for me? And the other thing right away to say is we have ways to benchmark that, which is the credit markets. So we just talked about high yield spreads being 900. So now you have sort of a benchmark. High yield typically trades not dissimilarly to equities. It's a little bit more of a senior claim. And so you have sort of something that's not too far off in terms of a, a comparability and allows you to sort of calibrate, do I think I'm getting compensated in a way that's fair? And even for many companies, if they have debt, you can even look within the capital structure itself and say, all right, here's where I can buy the junior or senior debt. Here's what I'm getting paid. What rate of return do I think would be, would be sufficient or attractive for the residual claim of equity? Okay. So when we start comparing across asset classes, one of the tricky things, and you had mentioned it earlier, the credit seems to be holding up, is there's this liquidity function on pricing that in the equities, it's pretty comfortable to say there's plenty of liquidity and markets are reacting to whatever people or the market is thinking. Whereas on the credit side, and particularly into high yield, there is this question of, have people just sold what they can? And is there a lag in recognizing what the market price is? So how would you go about thinking about how to incorporate what feels real and what may happen over an intermediate period of time to normalize pricing? I'm not an expert in credit. I do think that, I mean, you're making an obviously crucial observation. And I think that came to the forefront in the fourth quarter of 2018. I think there were people that wanted to trade bonds that simply there weren't bids and offers out there for the most part. So I don't know how to calibrate that, but it's just, I guess the equity credit spread thing to me, it just seemed to be that felt anomalous. So I don't know if you're saying there's just not activity in the credit market to really discover prices versus the equity market. I don't know if that's right. But liquidity is always a fairly big factor. And even going to your comment on private versus public, in some ways, I think that one of the advantages of private equity for almost speak specifically to buyouts is that investors can't pull their money out of these things. And as a consequence, they don't see the volatility they have no chance to transact at what would be deleterious prices relative to what they, they should get. And essentially that becomes almost beneficial. I think Cliff Astons wrote a paper about this. We always think about illiquidity. We should get a premium return to hold that. But maybe this is, again, it's this contract to keep me from myself. So you're right. And I guess we'll have to watch the credit markets 
carefully to see if what you're talking about unfolds. There's another wave or sets of waves that as we get into the less liquid securities, we get more market price discovery than what we've seen to, to date. As we step back from the markets, there is this virus and the potential impact on the economy and jobs. And even if it passes through, we know there's going to be a gap and small companies going under and people losing jobs. I was really curious if from all the other disciplines you've studied, are there other frameworks or lenses that we can use to think about just how to frame our expectations going forward? Well, this is another tricky one, especially in this context. I will mention that a few weeks ago or a week or two ago, Tyler Cowen and George Mason wrote an interesting essay about how do we think about the impact of this. And I think he distinguished between, I think he calls it the growthers versus the base raters. And so the growthers are saying, hey, these pandemics have this sort of exponential feature. And so it starts off small and everybody sort of blows it off and ignores it. But when you apply that exponent for some period of time, you get this sort of explosion. And the challenge is we don't really know what that exponent is. Now, what's interesting for us sitting in the United States today is now we have a little bit of experience with what China did, what South Korea did, what Italy did. And so that's how you start to get some frames on how things might unfold. The second camp he talked about were the base raiders. And these are people saying, okay, Nothing is exactly like this, obviously, but we had a major flu epidemic in, or I think pandemic in 1957. We had a horrible one in 1918. And National Bureau of Economic Research put out a series of papers that they've done in recent years, sort of documenting the economic and market and social impact of those. So that might be one way to start to inform yourself. So if you ask me on this growther versus base rate, I'm kind of in both camps. If I'm allowed to do that, and actually, if you read the Danny Kahneman, who really popularized this idea of base rates, one of the things he argued is come up with your own forecast. But when you look at the base rates, make sure you look at what that distribution looks like. And what we know is things like pandemics or just sort of illness breakouts in general. We don't really have enough sample size to know what that exponent looks like. So you have to be very cautious. You have to be very measured. And that's why it feels certainly extreme what we're going through societally and around the world. But precaution probably dictates that that's the right answer. So I'll say that one. And the other thing I'll just say, Ted, is that even in general, this stuff on how the virus spreads and so forth, this is really the heart of a lot of the work that we've been doing at the Santa Fe Institute for 30 years. And I think a lot of these sort of seminal papers on network theory specifically came out from SFI or SFI-affiliated scientists. And so that's a whole other way to model this, is to think about the epidemiology models, basically a virus cascading over a network, and how that network is structured has important implications for how things spread. And again, not surprisingly, New York City has become sort of the, the major spreading hub, because it's 8 million people in really close quarters. And again, it was probably undetected for a long time, and now we're just starting to see the manifestation of those interactions. So that's another thing I'll just mention that it's hard to model these things in real time, obviously, but that whole network theory, I think, really helps illuminate how this thing unfolds. And I'm certainly will allow us to now also build models for the future so that we're more prepared to think about consequences going forward. Are there other variables in that network theory? You can imagine density being sort of an obvious one that may not be as obvious in how something like this spreads. 
I mean, I think the one that I always found surprising is that most of these networks work in clusters. So you have your clusters of friends and I have my clusters and friends. We have overlap in our clusters and so forth. But they found that what was often essential, this is very intuitive if you think about it in terms of how this thing is spread, is there are often these edges, these people that connect different clusters and they become sort of the central carrier. So even though the clusters themselves may almost be immunized from one another, just one person going from one cluster to another propagates. And by the way, we we're talking about a virus, obviously, or some sort of illness. This is also how ideas spread. We talk about this really much in the context of markets. What is an information cascade? It's an idea propagating across a network. Why do we all come to uniform beliefs in markets from time to time? Same basic, it's a mind virus versus a physical virus, but basically it's the same kind of concept. So that to me was always a surprising feature. It's just adding just a few of these sort of linking people from one cluster to another really made the world much smaller than it would otherwise appear to be. As we take this back to markets, it's actually the first question we talked about the last time we did a podcast was how long should an allocator think of suffering when they're investing with a manager who's doing losses? This is a different thing because it's called, that might be an alpha component and this is the beta component. But what is the checklist that an individual, an institution should be thinking about if they're comfortable with the uncertainty We know there's uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen, but they want to make sure they're properly calibrating the risk. That's a tricky one. Part of that is there may be some different answers for different people, given what you're trying to achieve. It's interesting that a lot of, certainly people in the value community tend to be very dismissive of volatility as as a notion of risk. And I would just say that if you're trying to satisfy or meet short-term liabilities, volatility is actually a great way to think about risk. You need to write a tuition check for a kid in college or school, or you need to fund your retirement or whatever, those are going to be very important. If you're taking a longer term point of view, I think it does become a margin of safety concept and just figuring out where assets are sufficiently cheap relative to what you think that the ultimate value will be. So as a part of this, where are you? So obviously the perception of risk at least is highly elevated right now. This tends to be a pretty good environment to get going. Understand that we have no idea when the bottom gets put in. I will also say that I enjoy work by folks who try to think about this from a base rate point of view. I was flipping through Verdad Capital's work by Dan Rasmus and his team, and they had this really interesting analysis where they say after a drawdown of 20% in the S&P 500, you wait three months. So now from the beginning of March through early June, and then you get involved. And then they looked at small cap and large cap value, small cap and large cap growth. And what they found essentially in every instance going back, there are a few exceptions. You do quite handsomely well in the subsequent period, 12-month or 24-month period out. So what happens in the next few months, who knows? And by the way, these are often also typically opportunities, if you believe this, can you find companies that have been essentially sold off for reasons that are non-fundamental? So you can sort out the wheat and the chaff in these kinds of situations. I will say one other thing that, and we've been doing a little bit of work on this, but I find it to be fascinating. And it's also a good framework to go back to, I think, which is Richard Grinold's famous fundamental law of active management. I'm sure you've heard about this or probably applied it. The equation says that information ratio equals information coefficient times the square root of breadth. Okay. So that's a lot of fancy stuff. What that means in plain words is your excess return is a function of how skillful you are and the opportunity set. As a proxy for opportunity set, this idea of square root of breadth, we can often invoke this concept of dispersion. So how disperse our stock returns? And we are going through a very, very substantial period of dispersion right now. I don't know exactly how to explain that, but that's something that would be also on my checklist is to say, 
let me look at where dispersion has been the highest. Let me look at where I think I can add value or where I can apply my skill. And what we have shown is that it's very clear that the standard deviation of alpha is greatest following periods of high dispersion. So that's saying that high dispersion allows, when the tide goes out, you know who's wearing a swimsuit. High dispersion, that allows us to figure out who's skillful and who's not skillful. Whereas low dispersion, it's really hard because you can't distinguish yourself because there's no real excess, excess returns. So that's another thing I might think a lot about. And by the way, it's not just equities. It could be any asset class. Let's comb for dispersions in public markets, see where they're high, and then figure out if we have or a manager that we know has competence in that particular asset class. This is probably a good time to be thinking a lot about it through that framework. So if we circle back... We're checking our stress levels, making sure we're thinking clearly, doing some math on cash flows, checking interest rates, looking for effectively where to dive in with dispersion. Anything else that comes to mind? Another idea that I've always liked a lot and relates, I guess, to the initial topic about stress. And by the way, I will say stress. I think you hit on, you mentioned meditation, but the checklist on that is not difficult, which is eat well, sleep well move your body and then meditation. These are, and then it's actually social interaction. And so the last one's harder to do because you, you know, I can't have sit down and have a beer or something like that, but it is important to just make an explicit effort to reach out to people, to connect with them, family, friends, loved one, people, college roommates you haven't talked to in a while. That's really important as well. So there's one other idea I'll mention, and this may be more important for individuals than it is for institutions, but there's a really, I always thought intriguing paper by Shlomo Bernardzi and Dick Thaler on the topic of myopic loss aversion. Myopic loss aversion is obviously decomposing two different components. One is myopia, so short-termism, and loss aversion is this idea that we suffer losses more than we enjoy comparable size gains. And the math on this is actually pretty simple. What they say is in the short run, very short run, the market is up a little bit more than it's down, but not that much. Over a year, it's up about 70% of years. Over five years, the longer your time horizon, the more likely it is you'll see gains. By the same token, the more frequently you look at the market, the more likely you are to see losses. And so myopic loss aversion says for people who frequently revisit their portfolios, they're more likely to see losses, hence suffer from uh, aversion, and hence increase their equity risk premium or the needed rate of return. And so that, I think, can be a problem if people are constantly looking at their portfolios. And by the way, this yo-yo has been unbelievable. So you're up a lot one day, you're down a lot the next day. But those just to be mindful, those down days hurt much more than the up days feel good. And so this frequent revisiting will make people more risk averse. And as a consequence, may not be healthy for them to think clearly about, again, the longer haul. So just even if you're just aware of that, you're mindful of this idea that, hey, these losses sting more than at least in economic theory and utility theory, a dollar should be a dollar, roughly speaking. And so we need to get a little bit distance from that sensation and just being aware that that happens. One of the answers is literally, if you're, especially for individuals, is don't look at that 401k every five minutes. Just put it aside and just don't worry about it and recognize that in three, six, 12, 24 months, things will probably revert back to something that's pre-crisis levels. So whether it's an individual or an institution, is there this sort of I don't know, mental separation or mental accounting exercise where on the one hand, you don't necessarily want to look at your portfolio to have that emotional side. On the other hand, to do research in whatever form that is, you need to kind of look at what's going on so you can sort of pick your spots. Yeah. So the question is, can you do that work as unemotionally as possible? And that's what I say. That's why I you know, mentioned this expectations, this infrastructure, or 
knocking out two years of cash flows. Those are exercises hopefully you can do, not perfectly objectively, but reasonably objective to give yourself a little bit of context. Ben Graham had this great concept where he said, at the end of the day, it's very difficult not to be influenced by markets, but you should ultimately behave according to what the facts dictate or the data tell you. In these types of environments, it's difficult for people to be calm enough to actually get some data in front of them that makes sense, stress test it as far as you can. He said something like, don't hesitate to act if the facts and data support what you think is the right thing to do. And, and that's probably really good counsel. It's hard emotionally, but I do think that gives you some grounding and some confidence that you have a foundation for what you're doing. And by the way, if it doesn't work out, I think it will, but if it doesn't work out, you go back and check your work and say like, what did I miss? What did I not anticipate? What lessons can I learn from these results? Okay. So hopefully this part of this conversation, get a little bit of a grounding and how to think through how people spend their time now. I want to get away from that a little bit and ask you the question I always love asking you, which is what research project are you working on now? So the big thing we're working on, I'll mention two or three things. The first is we have a piece that's going to be out shortly that picks up a lot on this work by Danny Kahneman on the idea of noise. And in particular, there uh, a number of colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania wrote a paper on what they call the BIN model, B-I-N. B stands for bias, I stands for information, N stands for noise. And they did something really interesting is they went back into the Good Judgment Project and looked at the difference between the quality predictions of the super forecasters. These are these elite forecasters and regular forecasters. And by the way, I should say these regular forecasters aren't that regular, right? Because whoever's nerdy enough to go into a casting tournament is not a normal person to begin with. <laughs> we'll set that aside. So the question was, so we could say there are three possible reasons they're not as good as the super forecasters. Bias would say they're systematically biased, right? So they're, the bias is getting in their way. Information just means they're not as informed as the super forecasters. Okay, possibly. And noise is this idea, just to define noise specifically, noise is this idea of a non-systematic departure from the right answer. The punchline of this, which was, I think, really the key lightning bolt, was that when they decomposed this, they found that the difference between the best and the rest was 50% attributable to noise, 25 to bias, and 25 to information. So saying this differently, noise is twice as important as bias. Now, as you know, you can Google bias or behavioral finance, and you're going to get there. I think there are 150 biases people talk about. Now, right? Everybody talks about bias. How many people talk about noise? And so there are three different circumstances where noise becomes important. The first is when people basically have a similar job, similar task, similar professional task, and are given similar information, but come up with different answers. In the actual report, we show an interesting example that Money Magazine for years did this thing where they would send fictitious tax profile or income profile of a family to 50 tax preparers. And they would say, hey, how much does this family owe? You'd think, okay, it's the same tax code. They're probably using the same software. They, there are some judgments, but how much variance do you expect? And the answers come back anywhere from below $9,000 they owe to $20,000. So these gargantuan bands. So what I find provocative about that in the investment industry is, let me just, as a mental exercise, let's say we gave five analysts for an investment firm. So they're all doing the same job, same incentives, they're working on the same roof, gave them the same fact pattern on a particular company and asked them to value it. Would we have this widely huge range? Interesting, open question. The second place where this is relevant, and I think this is super important, more important than people think, is the same economic proposition to us as individuals temporarily over time. 
So I come to you, Ted, and I say, here's an economic proposition. You say yes or no. I come back to you a week later with the same economic proposition, and I say yes or no, and you answer differently. Why would you answer differently? Good night's sleep, bad night's sleep. Good mood, bad mood. Portfolios up, portfolios down. Like whatever it is, all sorts of these vagaries kind of introduce into our decision process. We cite this famous research to give pathologists the same biopsy slide over a short period of time. They correlations about 0.6. So they're pretty good, but they're not perfect. Wine judges, 0.5. They can't even tell the same thing within a fairly short period of time. And then the last is when there's a group of people making a judgment, a big strategic decision, whether it's a big hire or do an M&A deal or whatever. So this idea of noise. And so we finish that piece by talking about how to mitigate all these things. Bias has been talked about a ton, but how do you particular manager mitigate noise? So that's a big thing that we've been working on. And I'll just say probably the largest manifestation, I think, in money management, investment management industry really is position size. People spend a lot of time thinking about edge and really trying to think a lot of time about finding stocks they think are mispriced or bonds they think are mispriced. People tend to be non-systematic in their application of sizing discipline. Some people do it algorithmically. Certainly the quants would do it algorithmically, but you talk to a lot of discretionary people. It's, it's usually a finger in the air. It's how they feel about it. And even there's some evidence if you ask portfolio managers to write down ex ante, what rules they should follow to size their positions. A, they don't follow those rules. And B, there's evidence that if they did follow their own rules, they would do better than they actually did, which is interesting. So that's one big piece. We are doing a big piece on this idea of the Grinold on opportunity set. And what we try to do there is we trace back, and these are all obviously easy data to get, but we trace back for as far back as we can, dispersions in markets. And what you find is some years, not surprisingly, there's a lot of dispersion and that creates a lot of opportunity for active managers to do really well. Sort of the peak years were 99 and 2000, where you had some things going bonkers on the upside, others doing nothing. And that led to active management doing quite well. There are other years that are very challenging. 2014 comes to mind where the dispersion was very low and you could be super smart, but there just wasn't that much wiggle room in terms of the performance. And then we broke it down by sector and then ultimately by industry to take a look at where the richest opportunity sets are. So if you're a skillful technology investor, you have much more opportunity to distinguish yourself than if you're a skillful utilities investor or whatever that is, just because there's just not that much going on. The last thing I'll mention, and this has been, you and I have talked about this certainly offline, but we're working on a very big piece on sort of a 50-year look at the shift from public to private equities in the United States. So I'm trying to constraining the argument just to be U.S. equities. It's a big part of the global capital markets, obviously. But what's behind this? Why has it happened? What are the catalysts? Why do we have fewer companies around public today? Why is money flowed into private equity, buyouts and venture? How big are those markets? All those kinds of questions. And this is just another one of those things that's absolutely fascinating. And all of us have seen lots of data on the different pieces of it, but pulling it all together and really trying to take a 50-year view from 1970 to now, a 50-year view, really try to understand the context of it is a fascinating exercise. And again, reintroducing all the academic research of which there's quite a bit. The challenge in these things are things like venture capital is a good example where there just aren't really reliable data. You and I can look at the S&P 500 returns or the Russell 3000 returns. We can agree pretty much that the numbers are right. Venture capital returns, really hard. Even buyout returns, tough because the data sources are disparate and sometimes are, operate at cross signals. That's another area I think is really interesting. The last thing I'll just mention that's been on my mind a lot, and I actually think it plays into a little bit of the market environment, is 
one of the big watershed changes in the last four decades is companies used to invest mostly in tangible assets. Now they invest for the most part in intangible assets. So there's a right away an accounting implication because you're for the most part expensing your investments today, whereas you used to capitalize them before. But, and this is what I say to my students, I really think that this is an exciting opportunity because it compels investors to really understand the unit economics called the basic unit economics of businesses. So saying this slightly differently, you might have two companies that are both losing money, but one where the economics are fantastic and you want them to lose money because they're engaging in NPV positive investments and another company losing money that's actually bad, right? Because they're engaging in negative NPV. And the ability to distinguish this waving the hand, they're losing money, it's bad versus this one's good because the NPV is attractive. This one's bad because the NPV is unattractive. I think it's going to be a really big task. There's some great work on this by Dan McCarthy and Peter Fader. Dan McCarthy is at Emory and Peter Fader is at the University of Pennsylvania. Those guys have done some terrific work. They call it customer-based corporate valuation. I think it's a very exciting area. I'm sure we'll be doing more work on that area as well. Those are a couple of things that come to mind. The whiteboard, though, is full. <laughs> the whiteboard is, <laughs> I, I'll mention one more thing, Ted. I'll just say one thing and then I'll stop because I've been rambling. But I was at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference a few weeks ago. This is probably, maybe it was ill-advised to go, but I've quarantined myself since I've been there. And there was a really fascinating talk about by Richard Thaler on posing the open question. We've known in analytics what kind of stuff works for a long time. Why have teams and even leagues been so slow to embrace it? And I'll give you one example I thought was just, I haven't checked the numbers. I trust Thaler, but it was fascinating. He said that Larry Bird, in his career, made 37.6% of his three-pointers, but he took over his career less than two a game, 1.9. He said James Harden, now on the Rockets, makes 37.6% of his three-pointers, and the last few years has been shooting more than 10 a game. And last time we checked, three is more than two by 50%. You say, like, what would Larry Bird have done in today's NBA? It's these fascinating questions. So the question is, why has this going forward on fourth down, the whole thing about stealing versus walking and so forth. Why have these things taken so long to take hold in these sports leagues? So that's a really, really interesting question as well. And so we're going to play around with that a little bit, but the angle I think might be on the time horizons of various actors. So how long does a player stay in the organization? How long does a coach stay in the organization, GM, and then owner? And they have these sort of disparate time horizons. And what does that mean for this idea of thinking long-term, doing the right thing, reputational risk, just doing the boring thing never gets you fired, but doing the risky thing that's the right thing exposes you to potential criticism. And is that, did Thaler come at that from that kind of principal agent lens? He didn't so much, well, that came up in the conversation, which gave me the idea to try to really be more specific about it. One book I read recently, which I really enjoyed, is called The MVP Machine, about player development in Major League Baseball. And so I was asking one of my football executive friends, what's going on in the NFL? And he just said, baseball is a really kind of a weird thing because in a sense, we have control of our player for five to seven years. In fact, if they're good, we're playing them way below market for the last few years that they're in the organization. So it makes enormous amounts of sense to sort of get as much value from those players while they're around. And then you can let them, you sort of offload them when, and let someone else pay for essentially their economics. Said so in other sports like football, I think to a lesser degree, to some degree basketball as well, less of an incentive because they're just not as part of the organization. So it's this interesting balance because you want the players to be as good as they can be, but there's obviously a cost. So how do you balance those two things? So that's another really interesting sort of go. It goes back to these time things, these time horizon things. And yeah. 
You mentioned we in the context of the research, and I don't want to say each time we talk, there's been another step, but I know that you've gone full circle in some sense with now a title, the head of consilient research. And when I started following you, who knows how long ago it was the consilient observer. I thought it might help just so people can find you if they want to, to just mention what it is you're doing right now. Right. So at the beginning of the year, I joined Counterpoint Global, which is part of Morgan Stanley Investment Management. The leader of our team is Dennis Lynch. They're just a wonderful team of folks. So Dennis and I were talking about which we call what we do. And he, I think, sounds like he was a, a reader of the Consilient Observer back in the day. Just to bring everybody on the same page, the word consilience is a very old word. It came from the 1800s. And it really means the unification of knowledge. So you opened our discussion with us, sort of bringing ideas from disparate fields together to see if it helps provide some context or shed some light on the topic or problem that we're trying to grapple with. And so Dennis is like, let's bring this back. It's in the ethos of the organization. A lot of the team is very actively open-minded, really good readers, very sort of thoughtful folks. And so let's be very explicit about using this idea of consilience to sort of guide how we talk about what we do and how we actually do our research. So that's super fun. Again, as I've had in prior roles, part of the idea is to be as helpful as possible in investment process to for our own team, all our investors, which is great. Part of it is to create research that we first, of course, can hopefully use internally and then share with the world. And then do a, if there are other external things that make sense to do as well with clients or other things. So it's a great team and a great organization. And, and I feel very blessed to work with Dennis and this team because these are guys that totally get it and believe in the value of this kind of work, which is wonderful. All right. I'm going to come up with a closing question off the cuff, which is in these crazed times, what is your favorite thing to do to keep your mind balanced? I'm trying to practice a little bit of what I preach. And one of the virtues of not commuting is picking up a little bit of time. And I really try to allocate that additional time to very rigorous exercise programs. So I'm trying to work out a lot. But Ted, it's usually the same balance. I actually like to watch sports on TV, so I am missing that to some degree. I'm not a big TV watcher, but it's a wonderful opportunity to read some more. So I'm trying to pick up the pace on the reading, which is fun. And working out, I think, is the big thing. And I think working out for me is just a great de-stressor. It's a great way to ensure that my sleep is better. That would be my simple answer. Great. Well, Michael, really appreciate you taking the time on short notice. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one and see you next time.